0: Welcome to a new year of The Professor and The Hack. This is episode 141, but it's the first one for 2023. I'm The Hack, Hugh Rimmington, and with me in person this time, I'm happy to say, is the Professor Peter Van Onselen. G'day, Pete.
1: G'day, Hugh. Is it the year of the rat? Rabbit. Rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. I knew it had an R in it.
0: Is it the year of the Rabbitohs though?
1: Is it it the year for, uh, you know,
0: good omens for Anthony
1: Albanese? Now we're extending this too far, but yeah, good omens for Albanese. I don't know about that. I mean, put it this way. I confidently predict for our first podcast of the year, Hugh, that Anthony Albanese will still be Prime Minister at the end of 2023.
0: All right. That one's in the vault. We'll see how we go. (laughs) There's no reason to suppose that he won't B, of course, because he's been going okay in his first year or part year.
1: And he doesn't have an election, you would think, in 2023. There's certainly not one due. Yes,
0: yes. So so let's not assume that. But I kind of get the feeling that the real Albanese government starts now. Mm. Because last year was a lot of stuff you do when you're just newly into office. And it's also dealing with a whole bunch of new issues and clearing a bunch of things, you know, policy positions that you you wanted to do. But now we're looking into a new year where essentially you're you're subject to events and you have a budget in which you genuinely have to shape whether you are a reforming government, what shape of government you're going to be, how bold you're going to be, how timid, and, uh, you know, and there are a lot of problems in the budget. So this is the year, I think.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you about that. I think you make a good point that it starts right now, you know, sort of, if you like, the beginning of 2023, if they hadn't had that October budget last year, I would probably say, oh, I don't think it starts until after the May budget. And that's precisely why they had the October budget, if you think about it, in my view, because they didn't want to lose another five or six months at the beginning of this year with a three-year electoral cycle, having already been elected in May last year, it would be a full year from when they were elected that we would be saying, well, they're now essentially really in government in a more meaningful sense. So they had the October budget, they made some adjustments. We've seen some of the impacts of that, even though it was a fairly cautionary budget, but it allows them, as you say, Hugh, to really own government from the beginning of this year, which then means, and then we can talk about the May budget, it then means that the May budget can then Go to what you also mentioned, which is what type of government do they become now that it really feels like this is a Labour government as opposed to a transition away from a coalition government? And that's where we'll find out in May whether they really embrace reform or not, whether they break promises that they believe were necessary at the time or politically necessary at the time, but are no longer feasible or viable in government. It'll be a fascinating budget to count down to having had. Sort of tick and flick October budget.
0: Interesting to hear the government claiming that it didn't break one key promise, and that was the promise that uh, people's power bills would drop by $275, a very specific number, then not dropping. And uh, Chris Bowen was saying, oh, uh, Chris Bowen, I should say, the Energy and Climate Change Minister, was saying, oh, that's just a, a Liberal Party talking point to suggest we broke a promise because circumstances have changed. Well, circumstances always change. But uh, they're trying to do something on gas. It is not plain yet that it's worked. Uh, They say, wait, it will. But things like the energy crunch is going to be one of the many areas in which they're, you know, they're going to be tested, I suppose, in the public mind to competence as much as anything.
1: Well, it's definitely a broken promise. It's more just that it was a stupid promise to make and also an unnecessary one. And I stand to be corrected on this, but I think it was a promise that they made quite a way out from the May election last year, rather than reiterating it on the campaign trail. But I do stand to be corrected on that. Certainly, they first made it long before the election campaign, uh, and they didn't have access to the information that they got in government to show just how unrealistic it was that they could promise to bring down power prices. But none of that changes the fact that it was a broken promise. It's not just a liberal talking point. It's also a liberal talking point. But it was a promise that they shouldn't have made. You know, the idea that a government can promise to bring down energy prices in any way, shape, or form, frankly, is perhaps good politics at the moment that you make the promise if people hear it, but it can become something that really rebounds on you afterwards, and that is exactly what we're seeing now. I mean, even if they're successful, Hugh, in putting downward pressure on skyrocketing energy prices courtesy of things like their price cap, and that's questionable in and of itself, but even if they are successful on that front in a purest policy sense, it doesn't match up to the promise that was made that power prices would actually be less as a consequence of electing them rather than continue to go up.
0: So if we look at the real world that people are facing, interest rates are going to continue to go up. That seems inevitable. The inflation dragon hasn't been slain as yet. So we've got a situation where the budget is in structural deficit. It is blowing out in key areas, in NDIS, in health and aged care. Defence is going to be higher than it has historically been for some time and necessarily so. There are real issues there of a budget that is out of line where where it needs to be in the long term and people suffering real pain, particularly in the second half of this year, from interest rates. How serious do you think that is?
1: I think it's very serious and the hardest part about it for people who are, incurring the wrath of rising interest rates, is that interest rates will keep going up as long as inflation remains persistently high. And the latest inflation numbers showed that uh, up to November, it actually beat predictions by being higher than expected at 7.3%, I think it was. So the problem that that creates for people with a mortgage or people just with debt, uh, credit card debt even, which Australians have comparatively more of than most like-for-like countries around the world, private debt, quite apart from government debt, is that it makes it harder to pay it off uh, or just to pay the interest alone on it. And it's going to continue to go up where when the Reserve Bank gets back together next month in February, they'll put rates up and, and it'd be very surprising if they didn't put them up again in March and April and possibly even May as well in the month of the budget. That's going to push The cash rate above 4%, which means that people's repayments are much higher than that, depending on whether we're talking about homes or personal loans. The flow on effect of it, of course, is that rents continue to go up and it's hard enough to get a property, much less get one at an affordable price in a lot of major cities. So this is a problem, but here's the real rub of the green in my view, Hugh, is that interest rates go up because the Reserve Bank is trying to cause pain. What it's trying to do is get people to stop spending. It's trying to put downward pressure on inflation so it doesn't have to keep putting interest rates up. If the Reserve Bank is successful in its task of putting interest rates up, we're going to have an economic slowdown, which is likely going to cause higher unemployment, could cause a recession, although they're trying to avoid that. Overseas, in America, for example, uh, the Reserve Bank equivalent over there is very happy to cause a recession. That's how keen they are to slow growth. But our reserve bank wants to have what they call a soft landing, which would still mean higher unemployment. It would still mean slowing economic growth, which means business activity goes down, which is one of the reasons unemployment goes up. They hope to do it in a managed way. But if they mismanage it, if they put rates up for too long, when the economy has started to slow, but they don't see those lead indicators, it becomes a hard landing. And some people might say, well, why put rates up at all then. Well, the alternative is even worse. If you don't use monetary policy to fight inflation by raising interest rates, the economic outcome of persistently high inflation is much more perilous in the long term with a guaranteed hard landing than if you do try to manage it with monetary policy. So there's no good options, I guess, is what I'm saying Hugh.
0: Yeah, so on the Reserve Bank's own figures, the uh, average mortgage now is already over 8%. If these rises continue to come, then we could be up to a 10% mortgage again.
1: Can I, can I just say something? If, I mean, this isn't financial advice. That's always the caveat you have to be if you don't have a, a, a license as a financial advisor. <laughs> but can I encourage any listener, if they have a mortgage, to not only go to their bank and threaten to leave, but to actually go to either other banks or a mortgage broker who is self-interested, they get paid to switch you. But at the end of the day, it's easier now than it's ever been to change your mortgage to another lender. They don't have all the exit fees. The government abolished that. And you can put enormous downward pressure on what are already rising interest rates if you bother to go through the process. And depending on the size of someone's mortgage, you, know, you can definitely get a quarter of a percent off. You can probably go close to getting a percent off if you really push it and if your mortgage broker really pushes it. It's something that either laziness or ignorance often means people don't do it. But the impact over the years is unbelievably substantial. And the good thing, Hugh, is if you do it and then, for whatever reason, after the pain of all the paperwork, you don't like it, it's just as easy to change to another lender after that because of the new rules that governments have put in place. Banks rely on people's
0: static inertia,
1: loyalty, inertia. They don't reward that loyalty. New customers to individual banks get lower mortgages than existing customers. It's written into the way that they do business. So existing customers need to not be static and, and not you know not, not just sort of sit on their backsides. They need to get out there, particularly in a climate like we're talking about with rising interest rates. wasn't financial
0: advice. We'll call that consumer advice rather than uh, financial <laughs> advice. Um, what I'm, I'm intrigued about this is in the broader political sense is that if indeed we do wind up with a hard landing, we do wind up with a recession, you're already hearing a line that's being trotted out. I heard it from Ted O'Brien, who's the opposition climate change shadow, saying it's a great sting of, of a line. Inflation's back because Labor's back.
1: Yeah, I remember And
0: that. It's, it's such a neat and, – and people with those kind of long memories of the sense of, of inflation being high, which it was way back in the times of Keating, kind of going it might resonate with them. That's with an older voter, plainly. But the other danger is that we go into recession and the argument goes recessions are back because Labor is back and that Labor who's come into government and then in the first period in government under Albanese seen as being fantastic, how much of that positive glow will survive if in fact we're back in a recession and it opens up that opportunity for the coalition to attack Labor on the basis of being poorer economic managers and so on? I think Labor's
1: really conscious of this because they if you like, ran away from the Hawke-Keating legacy after they lost the 96 election in a thumping landslide to John Howard and then as a result of running away from that legacy rather than being proud of it, and I mean proud of the micro and macroeconomic reforms of the Keating years as opposed to curling up in a ball whenever the Liberals newly in government after 96 attacked things like debt, deficit, interest rates, inflation and all the things you mentioned. By not fighting on the turf... The the, the the economic open turf. They then lost that debate over the coming 10 years. The Howard government became, well, John Howard became the second longest serving prime minister in Australian history. And they sort of cemented this notion, real or unreal, that they were the better economic managers. Jim Chalmers, I think, is really conscious that they're, and, and, and that, by the way, we should say affected the Rudd government too, because when it took over, you had the global financial crisis, it's spent up to try to avoid a recession around that. And whether you think they were right or wrong in what they did and didn't do, they were clubbed politically over the head for the same things that the Keating government was and they didn't muscle up adequately uh, and therefore the stigma of those attacks, you know, worked. Jim Chalmers lived through that as a staffer. He was Wayne Swan's chief of staff when he was treasurer. I think he's really conscious now as treasurer not to let that happen. doesn't mean it won't. Peter Dutton's old school, he was assistant treasurer at Costello when they lost the 2007 election. A lot of people forget that. He, he knows well how to play that type of politics uh, as well as in that space. But Labor is, is on to it. So I'm going to be fascinated to see whether it works or not. You know, older Australians already are more likely to vote Liberal than Labor anyway. That's just the demographic nature of it. But fewer did at the last election than traditionally do, which is one of the reasons that Albanese was successful. Is that enough for people with those memories to fall for one of those lines? Because it is a political line. Both sides do that sort of thing. Or is it not enough because that cohort has shrunk or has rebranded or Labor muscles up to it and younger generations don't have this notion of Labor are bad economic managers, Liberals are good economic managers,
0: okay, turn the page to the next debate? Yeah, it's the ones who uh, have had their parents in their ear saying, "Well, Labor, they're no good at this stuff. And uh, the youngsters going, no, I think they'll be okay. And then if it goes into a recession, they go, well, maybe dad and mum were right. Who knows what might happen?
1: And that's the other thing, isn't it? Like the selfish gene in the way people vote, even if you don't believe the rhetoric of the coalition. If you lose your job or if you're suffering from higher payments, you know, you need to blame someone other than just say, oh, well, such is life. And you tend to blame the incumbent. So whether it's the Liberals or the Labour Party in government, you blame the incumbent. And if you then look at the opposition, one of the only things that can save an incumbent is that you think they're going to be even worse. Well, if the, if the sort of back of mind notion is that Labor aren't as good at economic management as the, managers as the Liberals, you're not going to have that worry that the coalition are going to be worse. You might have it on a lot of other issues, Hugh.
0: Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't <laughs> think know. they're ready for government yet, but who no. knows, it's time to come. Yeah. Uh, look, the other big thing for the year, the high-profile debate for the year is The Voice. Let's have a chat about that. We'll take a quick break. Welcome back to The Professor and the Hack, episode 141, with the uh, Professor Peter van Onselen. The voice, Peter, I've got a nervous feeling about the voice because at the moment I don't think it has landed where it needs to be. We're a long way off, but it is still wafting around in the ether with people not having a very distinct sense of what it is and there's only so much time I think, before these arguments can be clarified to the point that people know what they're voting on. What's your feeling on the whole debate about the detail argument and whether the government so far has been um, running the argument properly? Well,
1: I mean, I'm sort of, I'm loath to say this, but, you know, it's how I feel. I, I'm worried that the government is being so unclear about what a voice is or isn't and what it may or may not become, and all of these sort of ifs and question marks, that as a consequence, something that is designed to be a reconciliation point and designed to bring us together, could actually end up causing many more divisions than anticipated, because you you will have two sets of people that potentially can come together when voting on this to defeat it, which would be diabolical for the whole reconciliation movement. You have the people who would vote against it no matter what, but they are able to rabble rouse with all sorts of questions and concerns about what it could look like, what it might mean, the lack of detail, et cetera, et cetera. That's a cohort that of itself is not enough to defeat it, but they could be joined by a bunch of people whose hearts and minds are in the right place where they would want to support something that they think the voice is or isn't, but ultimately just decides, as so often happens in referendums, to vote against it because they feel like there's not enough detail or they don't really understand it properly. And, and the government has to take the blame for this so far. Now, maybe it'll fix by the time we get to the, the promised referendum, which is promised to be in the second half of this year. But at the moment, yes, there is a lot of detail out there if you go looking for it about what the voice might look like. But it's also true that none of it is definitive. Mm. It's options. Uh, You know, the government likes to refer to a lot of the formal detail that's been provided by the committee tasked with putting together the proposal around the voice. But what they've put forward is a bunch of options. And Anthony Albanese wants Australians to vote with their hearts, not their heads. He doesn't say it like that, but he wants people to vote yes because you believe that there should be an Indigenous voice to Parliament, I think a majority of Australians in a majority of states agree with that. But if you don't then put the meat on the bones of that, I think that you lose potentially that majority, certainly in a majority of states, which you need constitutionally. And one of his arguments, and Linda Burney, as his Indigenous Affairs Minister, has made this argument many times as well. One of the arguments is that uh, you know a lot of other referendums don't carry those details. Well, I've got two things to say to that. The first thing, very quickly, is that that's why most referendums fail. <laughs> because they don't carry enough details so voters vote no. The second thing is they're right. We, we don't have the kind of constitution that you know, is sort of written in stone. It's, it's, it's something that can be interpreted by the high court. But making that point, even if he's right in a policy sense, doesn't necessarily help him politically because then that will allow opponents of the voice to say, well, that's half the point here. If it's not specific and clear, it could become anything. You know, it allows that sort of floating of the the bogeyman to to get people to be worried about it.
0: It's interesting, too, because part of the thing which I think Australians really support most strongly is the notion of there being some constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the Constitution, that the founding document says, look, these people were here for tens of thousands of years. In fact, that's not what you vote on. No, because that's a preamble, isn't it? Well, you could put it in the preamble, but that's not currently in discussion so what you, what you've got is a recognition of first nations people by inference it's not a statement of recognition it's a recognition by inference because if you're saying in the constitution that aboriginal and torres strait islander people will have a voice to parliament by inference they are recognised in the constitution and i think some people might feel there's a lack of ambition there and a lack of a declarative statement that australia is built as a modern society upon the people who were here for tens of thousands of years, who developed this culture or cultures with extraordinary achievements, the capacity to convey information, to have unity of religious thought over vast distances without road systems, forms of transport, not even the horse, not written systems. So there, are, there is enormous sophistication to this culture, these series of cultures that we still don't fully understand and recognise that adapted to this vast landscape and and succeeded over that amount of time. So some sort of recognition of that is not in, we're not, that is not what people are going to be voting on.
1: Yeah. And and can I just say, I mean, even if, I mean, I agree with that, but even if that weren't the case, just, I I still think that the Indigenous culture of this land needs to be recognised. In the sort of way that a preamble, a voice, constitutional recognition would dictate, much less when you then also look at the the depth and the fascination of that culture, if I could put it that way. Here's the the problem though. Someone like me, I I would like to see some sort of preamble or recognition in the constitution that's overt. I'm even open minded about a treaty, which a lot of Australians are much more wary about. I can see all the reasons why you would want to do that, given that there was nothing of the sort uh, at the point of colonisation.
0: Well, New Zealand is just short of 200 years since they had a treaty with the Indigenous people of New Zealand. Nearly 200 years ago, they did it in New Zealand. Why Why are we still waiting here?
1: Exactly, but, but here's, here's the political risk around the voice. Someone like me sits here and says, well, I'm pro-recognition in the Constitution. I'm pro-preamble. a preamble, You know, let's have the discussion about what that looks like. Great. I'm even entirely open-minded about the idea of a treaty, it then becomes a debate and a discussion about what that might look like. The voice with whatever that might look like in terms of what, and I'm partly putting my political scientist hat on here, what that might look like as opposed to what Anthony Albanese in the odd interview says will or won't apply, which ultimately means very little as the years and decades roll by. I want detail on that. I want to know where limits are, where it goes. I'm not against it. In fact, I'm, I'm notionally absolutely for it, but I have concerns and question marks. Now, what do I do at the end of that? I probably take the view that comes from Albo's speech on the eve of the election that this is a hard issue. So I, I can't imagine that I would vote against it ultimately. But I do want a lot more details. And I am sitting and haven't yet really talked about it as a commentator, I haven't written about it yet. And I may never in the countdown to it because I'm not sure that I want to write about my concerns and feed something, even if I sort of, if you like, want to get it through. But I guess I'm saying that if somebody who's open to a treaty has concerns about the lack of information around a voice, how many other Australians who are already closed-minded about something more significant like a treaty are going to also share concerns about a voice if they don't get more details? So the government's got to fix that, I think, or else they're on a path to failure potentially.
0: Yeah, look, there are are two things, I think, for those who want to see this come to pass, which are arguments that can be used. First of all, of the options that were put together by the group, in some ways the founding fathers and mothers of the new Australia, the forward-looking Australia, the people who gathered at Uluru, said this is what they want first. And so that should be... Respected or given a fair degree of weight. And the other point to it is the point that was made by Professor Anne Toomey, constitutional law professor at Sydney University, who says that what we're voting on is not the detail. You cannot vote on the detail. And the reason for that is that if you codify all the elements of the voice and then vote on it, you can never change it without another referendum. It becomes fiendishly difficult to change it or amend it if it's not working as intended. So Therefore, it has a reasonably simple structure that you vote for, and then it is up to Parliament to work out the wrinkles of precisely how many members might be on the voice, exactly how do they you know, get selected, the degree to which they are formalized into the structures of the committee system, for example, in terms of being a voice to Parliament, what are the formats by which they become a voice to executive government, which is also intended, what is the... Uh, the working system by which the local and regional voices, which are seen it because the voice is two structures as described by Marcia Langton and Tom Karma. It is a voice, a national voice to parliament. It is also a local and regional structure which enables Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at a local level to raise concerns and then feed them up the chain. So all of that detail is for parliament to work out. And if it doesn't work in some Level it can be reformed by Parliament without going back to the Constitution. So in other words, keep it simple for the actual voice system. Keep it broad because Parliament will sort out any difficulties to make sure it works at its optimal level. But I've taken just then what four or five minutes to say that, and right. that's not a slogan. And the
1: other problem with it is is that a constitutional lawyer taking a view on something. Has a different prism to a political scientist looking at something like that as well. So let me give you a bit of a counter argument to that. Sure, if you codify something, the only way you can change it is via another referendum. Absolutely. We see the problems that can ensue from that. But in a sense, a lot of Australians want at least a negative codification. In other words, they want it codified that this voice can't somehow usurp Parliament. Now, I'm not suggesting it's going to, but they worry, some people do, that you know, judicial interpretation or legislation in a parliament, you know, controlled by one side of politics rather than the other can therefore create all sorts of unintended consequences of the original good intent of a voice if it doesn't have certain codification attached to it. And look, I tend to be more concerned about codification than not. So I tend to agree, you know, with my political scientist hat on with Anne about that. But I can see why politically it's easy to exploit it to the other side if you've got a problem with the voice. And I can also see why partisans on the right, in this case, really, have a concern about activism. You know, they, 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 they don't like judicial activism and they don't like an activist legislature that can therefore, you know, if you like, do too much sometimes. You know, the conservatives like to have only incremental change at best. So I can see why they sit there and say, well, if we have a voice, all of a sudden you might have a high court scenario where they interpret that the meaning of this voice is for it to be able to block parliament and have a veto right, for example, decades from now. They worry about that. And, look, these are scare campaign tactics. Let's be very, very clear about this. But
0: some people feel that way. Yeah, if you were a gun-for-hire political campaigner, completely amoral. You don't care which side you're going to argue for, but you're going to bring all the tools that you have in your yep. toolkit to whoever hires you. It is far easier to shoot down the voice than it is to build it up and pass it. And that's the difficulty.
1: And he, can I ask you what you think about this? I was talking, I, I won't name them because it was a private conversation, but I was talking to a bunch of people who are absolutely in favour of the voice and they were sort of lamenting the, the, all the concerns that we've discussed in this podcast. And then I sort of said the other issue is that unlike, for example, the referendum to give Indigenous Australians proper full citizenship and voting rights which was so overwhelming in the percentage of it this could win narrowly which has its own level of divisiveness going forward they didn't hold that view they said a win's a win's a win so once it's through you move on they could well be right on that because that for example is what's happened with same-sex marriage a win's a win's a win it ended up being quite a good win at two-thirds but nonetheless it wouldn't have really mattered I don't think if it was 90 percent or if it was 51 percent it got over the line Where do you sit on that? Does it matter if the voice only wins narrowly? No, no.
0: If it's one, it's one. And people will move on from
1: that. See, I tend to think it's going to win, but I tend to think it's going to become divisive, get close, and then scrape over the line.
0: Yeah, it could be. And, And may I just say that if you go back to my notional sort of gun for hire person, I'm suggesting that he's using all the dirty tricks or has available to him all the dirty tricks. This is very much exposed to a dirty tricks campaign if you wanted to shoot it down.
1: Well, for that to happen though, Hugh, this is one of the interesting things because Anthony Albanese has made it clear that there won't be public funding on either side of this and we know that there is decent money that can be put behind the good intent of a voice, right? So it will be well-funded. The thing that's going to be interesting to watch is how well-funded, if it's well-funded, is a no campaign against the voice. Ultimately, I think it's going to rely on some well-financed, billionaire potentially, we won't name names, to really get in behind it? Because a lot of corporates, as they're already doing, are going to get in behind the Yes campaign. Will there be people on the margins uh, who have lots of money who might decide, you know what, I'm happy to chuck money into it? Other billionaires have done that before, uh, whether it's in sport or whether it's in starting their own party uh, or whatever it might be. So that will be interesting to watch.
0: We'll see how all that goes. It's, uh, it's good. Oh, well, By the way, what do you think of uh, Peter Dutton's roles so far in this? I, I, I
1: don't think he is somebody who's deliberately trying to kill it, let me say that, but I think he is contributing to killing it and he would say, actually, I'm calling out Anthony Albanese who is contributing to killing this by not providing more detail. Ultimately, I think he would rather this didn't become a culture war issue and he was able to support it but he doesn't feel like he can hold his right flank together if he doesn't get more detail, so he's going to hold the line on that even if it it causes it damage.
0: But he could effectively kill it by creating, removing the image of bipartisanship while at the same time blaming Labor for it.
1: But he's also got to be careful about his left flank. I mean, we saw what happened to the Nationals when they came out and said, we're opposed to this as a party. It didn't matter that they have the right for people to cross the floor. You know, Andrew G quit the party over it. Others have expressed concerns, and that's in a very small party room that's more naturally conservative than the Liberals. Peter Dutton can't say the Liberals are opposed to this. He can say, I am. But then even that, he starts to invite moderates in the party to start arcing up and and raising concerns and saying that they disagree with their leader. Much more problematic in opposition.
0: Yeah, it's funny because you, you talk about the dangers here for Albanese. He doesn't want to lose this. He's, he's attached himself to this, but there are big problems holding together the you know the coalition and holding together the various factions within the Liberal Party. So this is a tricky one for all of them. It's <laughs> it's not in many ways the main game. If the economy is the main game, others will say it is the main game. But
1: uh, and, and that could help it or hurt it, couldn't it? I mean, people might just vote against it if it's the second half of this year. The economy will you know, be much more, it'll be much clearer to us by the second half of this year, how the economy is tracking at the exact same time that a lot of energy is going to be expended on a discussion around a voice. Do people just go, oh, we don't care about this. So they vote no. Or do they say, well, yeah, okay, we like the good intent of this. We'll vote yes, but we don't really care about it. I I suspect it'll be one of those two.
0: Look, we're nearly out of time. We've got a couple of things to go on. One is the New South Wales election, but I might park that. We'll talk about it next week. Very important election, obviously. It's the last Liberal-held mainland state, and uh, Perrottet there fighting for his life to keep that going. But uh, Jim Molan, Senator Jim Molan, former Major General Jim Molan, died in recent days. Mm. I reckon Jim was a substantial contributor to Australia, is a military man initially, and he did run the war in Iraq. He's the operational chief that the Americans brought in and we're happy to have him running at 300,000 troops In the early stages, 2004, 2005 in Iraq, that was a pretty major role for an Australian. Then entered Parliament and his legacy, I suppose, in a policy sense was uh, forming up Operation Sovereign Borders. What do you make of the late senator and, and his contributions?
1: Yeah, well, he had a much bigger impact than most people in the military who rise to the rank that he did have. If he had no political career but he just did what he did in the military, which was really his you know, whole career in, in a much more substantive sense, he would still be one of those people who didn't become the head of the army or the head of the military writ large, who is still remembered because of the things you mention, uh, sovereign borders, as well as you know, running the international force in, in Iraq for a period. But having then moved into politics, he's also interesting because he then had a real hard-edged... Senior military person in the parliament. You get a lot of ex military types, but most of them tap out at, you know, sort of captain or major rather than push all the way through to those general ranks, much less within the context of what he did quite uniquely as an Australian general. So, an interesting impact. And that's all before you even consider that he was also a warrior for the hard right out of New South Wales within the Liberal Party factional structure, not just on national security issues, which was his bread and butter, but on a host of other issues as well. And that's all before you get to the fact that he just happened to have a daughter who's more famous than he ever was in journalism, you know, at Channel 9 and Sky News now. So he had a pretty big imprint despite, uh, even just as a politician, a pretty big imprint despite not being a frontbencher at any point in time. Mm,
0: indeed. And, of course, it does raise, as inevitably it must do. Nature and politics abhors a vacuum. There is now a space on the Senate ticket that must be filled in New South Wales. That's getting a little bit willing from what we hear, as it inevitably does in New South Wales factional politics, to look for a replacement.
1: And it really matters, this one too, because he was only just re-elected at the last election, which for Senate terms means, unless there's a double dissolution, it's a six-year term that's only just begun. The male is that he's the right-wing candidate, so the right within the factional structure will get it, but they'll still have their own fight internally to work out who gets it amongst a cohort of names. Will it be a woman, for example, because the Liberals keep promising they're going to fix their gender representation problems, or will it be a man? Then you've got the moderates who would like to take the position, but are willing to sit it out if they think they're going to get Maurice Payne's position uh, anytime soon, if she chooses to move on, because she was, of course, only re-elected at the last election as well. So there will be all sorts of jostling there, but we're hearing that the Liberal Party might even put that off until after the state election, which we'll talk about next week.
0: Fantastic. Peter, great to talk to you as always. Happy New Year, although we're already most of the way through January and uh, good to have the Prof and the Hack back for another year. And good to see you. Talk to you soon. See you, man.
1: You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app.